Okay, I'm excited today to talk about The Wind and the Lion with Logan here. And it was it was fine. This wasn't a bad movie. It wasn't a great movie. But there was a lot of good stuff in it, I thought. I found it very watchable, even if kind of very average 1970s movie. What, what did you think overall about The Wind and the Lion? I loved this movie. Oh, good, I had good. such I had such a fucking blast watching this movie. Okay, it was surprisingly solid, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. I really, really liked, like, the last 45 minutes. There's just something about that old-school 1970s, like, war epic action mm. style that I just... Oh, you got a little bit of that Lawrence of Arabia fix from, from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I can't get enough of that stuff. Okay, okay. I guess I would see it as... I almost like it was two different movies because like, well, just to kind of explain, it's, it almost feels like a spoiler, but that's silly. It's not. So the wind is referring to Teddy Roosevelt and the lion is referring to the Sean Connery, Sean Connery character, uh, Raizuli, Raizuni, both seem to be acceptable there. Um, so it's just one is the wind, one is the lion and they never actually meet. So you have like the titular dichotomy or whatever there and the characters never actually meet. And so you kind of have Teddy Roosevelt back home as how he's dealing with the situation that we'll talk about here, uh, the kidnapping, and then Sean Connery's character uh, over in North Africa in Morocco doing his kidnapping thing. And to me, it felt like I thought the Teddy Roosevelt side was a much better movie <laughs> than the Sean Connery side. Like, I, I, I just felt like there was, even though there was less going on, I saw it was like, like the writing was really, really strong. And that's what sets it apart, I mean, some of these other movies that don't seem super impressive. This had really sharp writing. They kind of kept the thing, uh, scenes that would have otherwise maybe got away from the filmmakers and been boring. The writing and the dialogue, I thought, kept it really solid. I would agree with that. One of the other things that I really, really liked about this movie that I was not expecting is the fact that, like, at the end during the big battle, all those American soldiers, those are all Marines. Oh, <laughs> so it's like it was like a it was like a, a sneaky like Marine Corps history movie as well. You're like those are my boys <laughs> <laughs> with the inclusion of the Marines at the end. Um, and how old? Remind me. So how old is the Marine Corps? Or is it always older than we think it is? It's uh, the founding date is November 10th, 1775. Okay, so it is way older than. Okay, okay, yeah. The actual like United States Marine Corps that was founded by the Act of Congress, I think, is later on in the 1780s. But the, okay. the Marine Corps traces its lineage back to the Continental Marine, the Continental Marines. Why was again? We're, we're side noting already. Why was the distinction made at that time in the 1700s between Marines and Army? Because they were on ships. Even in the 17 oh, even in the 1700s. Okay, okay. Yeah, so they were they were you know they would like they were on the ship. They would help you know repel borders if you were getting you know attacked or they would do amphibious landings. They were also on ships as like a naval kind of infantry force that whenever the ship would go park somewhere, the Marines would get off the ship and then make sure that nothing happened to the ship or, you know, the area where it's docked. Is it as simple as, and I mean, I mostly know this, but I just want to kind of spell it out. So is it as simple as, historically, Army is land forces, Navy is sea forces, Marine is the hybrid that goes wherever it needs to go via ship. Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. And so that's where that's why also, like, the, the Army is kind of like a bigger, heavier, slower moving force, whereas the Marines, because of their, you know, because of that heritage of being on the ships, are generally lighter equipped, you know, do more with less type military force. And I think I'd heard before, and I don't know if this is, this is correct, that basically... 
army is occupying force, marine is invasion force. Is that ish? Because army can also invade in theory. Yeah, the, I mean the army can also invade, and a lot of uh, especially like in more recent conflicts, there's there's obviously a lot of overlap and bleed over. But right. traditionally speaking, yeah, the the marine corps is more of the you know. They're on the ships that are out at sea all the time. Like, there's always what they call marine expeditionary units or MUSE. And they're always out all the time. And they can land troops anywhere. And not just for, like, invading places. I mean, they do humanitarian missions and stuff all the time, too. So, like, they'll fly, you know, humanitarian aid on helicopters or all kinds of stuff. Okay. And more, so it's more about the distinction between fast movement versus slow study movement is almost maybe how you would use implement them today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I mean, j- like the name Marine suggests, it's all it's also like very much naval based. Right. And I feel like that's kind of I mean, that's why then. Yeah. Marine is basically of the water, so, which is marine animals and stuff. Yeah. They're, right, they're not yeah. fighting animals. They're water animals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I feel like that's kind of lost today. People, I feel like forget. Or, I guess I feel like the average citizen today doesn't associate the Marines with the water specifically, even though it's obviously what the name means. And uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. So, of course, the, the when they take... That was the one thing watching the film. I was like, there's no way that happened. That would have started a war. Yeah, and it didn't happen. They didn't take the palace in Algeria or whatever in, in during this conflict, which happens at the end of the film. I mean, the Marines were involved, but they didn't, like, seize the government palace in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was I think, kind of made up for the movie. <laughs> right. I, I even watched it. I was like, I was like that's, that's a step too far. I'm like, there's no way this happened. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh all right let's uh we're, we're all over the place here we haven't even told the, the listener here because i doubt the listeners watched this movie so uh we can kind of tell what it's about here and i i was honestly kind of surprised that i had never heard of this movie like not only had i never seen it i had never heard of this movie before we watched same, it for same. the yeah for the show and but it's like man it's right up my alley and honestly i gotta ask my dad if he's ever seen or heard of this movie and if he hasn't i want to show it to him because i think he would really like it too because this is like this is like the quintessential like logan growing up like you know 1970s era war movie i almost wonder if your dad's just a hair too young like it came out when he was in grade school or middle school and so yeah he just never got around to it and so he like it just if it was five years earlier i think yeah your dad or sorry five years later five years later yeah your dad's probably all over it or again of course obviously those older older classics then maybe his parents are showing i I don't know so it's just kind of yeah well this it was 70 it came out in 75 so he would have been 12 years old Right, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, how many twelve year olds were going to watch The Wind and the Lion back in 1975? I don't know. Uh, that's a, that's a good that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Other than Sean Connery was like Sean Connery, so you would think it would. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the the film is a 63 slash 70 on Rotten Tomatoes, and it sounds like we're both probably on the higher side of that. Like I was I was thinking I was not expecting as solid of a film given that score because we have others with that score that we kind of like don't appreciate as much. Yeah. It had two Oscar nominations for uh, sound and score. And I, I get that. I kind of I can see that with all the war stuff. And the score was really good. Sometimes those 70 scores don't hold up. And, I, and this one was pretty good. So the director is John Milius, who sounded kind of familiar, but I, I really didn't know who he was. But he has, he has two far more famous movies that most people will have heard of. Red Dawn and Conan the Barbarian. So those are both also John Milius films. Yeah, and both movies that I absolutely love. Okay, okay. I don't know that I've seen them start to finish, honestly. Like, I mean, I've, I'm familiar Either with Either one of them? I don't think so. Like, Oh, man. I, I'm definitely familiar with them, but I don't know that I've... Since the one I, I... Ironically, I think I would always watch... Oh, 
you know, it's because of the age and stuff. So Conan the Barbarian was rated R, but the sequel, Conan the Destroyer, was only PG-13 or whatever. Uh, so I yeah. had seen a okay. lot of Conan the Destroyer, and I don't know if I ever actually got around to the original Conan the Barbarian. But in addition to being a director, Milius was also a writer, and the stuff he wrote is actually even more famous than those films. So he wrote Magnum Force, which I think is the first Dirty Harry movie. He also wrote Apocalypse Now. So Milius mm. is the guy who wrote the line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Coppola does seem to have altered the script and maybe even in ways that Milius didn't really care for, but it was Milius's like project to take Heart of Darkness and turn that into a Vietnam film. That was a Milius thing before Coppola ever came on board. So this is Apocalypse mm. Now was was his kind of baby. So the film is based off the real-life Perdicaris. I don't even know how to say it. It's Greek. It's actually pretty simple, I think. But I don't know where to put the emphasis. Perdicaris affair? Yeah, I think Perdicaris, but I'm not sure. Okay, and and they say it in the film. So, But the biggest change right off the bat is that the kidnapping victim was not a 29-year-old widow and her two children. So in (laughs) in the film, it's... Candace Bergen, uh, who we would have seen in, was she in Sand Pebbles? There was another film around this time that she was in. I was thinking. Um, hang on. I don't know if it was Sand Pebbles or there, there's there's something else we watched where she got kidnapped or something. I'm going with Sand Pebbles, but there might have been another one on the ship. Well, uh, Sand Pebbles did have the whole kidnapping thing, but I did, I don't remember if that was Candace Bergen or not. There was another one. If it wasn't that one, there was another one set about the same time. Let's see. Or not said about the same filmography. Made about the same time. She isn't. She isn't the sand. Pebbles. Okay. Okay. Yeah, she is. That's that's the one. You're correct. And that was late sixties. What year was the Sand Pebbles? Uh, that one was 1966. Oh wow! So she was really young there. Because so she's only 29 in uh, 1975, and so she would have been 20 in Sand Pebbles. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. So that was just kind of for the movie to make it more interesting. In real life, so they gave her even the same name, Perdicaris or whatever. In real life, Mr. (laughs) Perdicaris was a a 64-year-old American, and he was kidnapped from this estate, you know, in in, uh, Tangier there, just outside of Tangier, very similar to the film. But it was, uh, yeah, 64-year-old American man and his 47-year-old British stepson. Those were the two kidnapping victims. So decidedly different, probably decidedly less sexual tension <laughs> in real life. <laughs> so, so they completely changed that part. But the idea that this uh, Raizuli guy did kidnap an American and then Teddy Roosevelt responds by sending naval ships, that's real. That actually happened in 1904. So I was a little confused. So I, I kind of lost track of what were his demands in the film? What was he saying specifically he wanted in the film? I kind of missed that part, I feel like. I I don't r- know or, if... Or it's just kind of vague, vague, vague give me money kind of thing. Well, yeah, because there's a scene where where she asks, like, what do you expect to get out of this? And he said, gold, rifles, uh, okay. sovereignty for my people. Kind of a just, like, I want gold and rifles and also for, you know, the European powers to leave us alone. Okay, and then... Who in the film is he making these demands of? What's the thing? I don't. I don't. It's kind of vague. I don't know that he really ever gets around to it until like (laughs) until the end. Until the end, there's that that kind of go between guy. Yeah. So I I do think that it was kind of unclear in the film, or or we just kind of missed it. So in real life, it's a little more specific. Like he was doing this for money, uh, but it was kind of weird though too. Is 
he was making his demands of the Sultan, like of Morocco or Tangier, or I guess I don't really know how their government structure works, but he, he was making the demands of the Sultan, not the U.S. Right. So I was kind of confused by that. But so I think it's just as simple as, because I, I was like, why would the Sultan care whether or not this dude in his country kidnaps an American expatriate? And I think it's more just like, because Roosevelt responds with the heat. So I'm putting the heat right. on our government. So you better give me what I want. So it takes the heat off of your government. And it was kind of that. Yeah. And because there's that there's the scene where uh, where the American ambassador is talking to the Sultan. Mm, okay. And it I think that is I, I think that was the effect that that Rasuli was going for. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is that he said, well, I'll kidnap an American and then the Americans will come down hard on the Sultan and basically say, hey, you need to, like, get your country under control and make right, this problem right. go away. And the easiest way to do that for the Sultan would be just to give over a bunch of gold and rifles and, you know, deal with Rasuli. Right. And that, and that basically that the, he was that it was like a three it was like a indirect way of putting pressure on him from the americans right and, and in real life it, it was essentially that he asked for he wanted money uh, i think he initially asked for less but he upped his demand to seventy thousand dollars and that was back then so it was the equivalent of a couple million dollars i believe or over a million dollars in today's money um, but again that was of the sultan that he was asking that money of right uh, but he also wanted some political power so basically i want to be in charge of my little area over here and again I don't understand their government structure exactly, but basically he was wanting a political position and cash in exchange uh, for the American man and his British stepson <laughs> that he had kidnapped. Uh, so, and they also moved the timeline a little bit. So the film, like right off the bat, it said, then it said like October 15th, 1904. And that seemed like it was more just because they were trying to make a point to tie it into the election, which is weird because you didn't need to make that change because... It actually happened in like the like May, June, you know, kind of in that early, early spring, early summer time, which times up with the Republican National Convention. And so this actually became like a hot issue for the Republican National Convention. So we talked about Teddy Roosevelt getting the presidency after McKinley was assassinated. So you're heading into the 1904 election and Roosevelt is the president, but he has not yet been elected president. He is just finishing out McKinley's term and is running on his own for the first time. And part of the reason he even sends ships, um, it becomes a something to hang his hat on. Hey, we're going to go to bat for this uh, American overseas there. And John Hay, played by John Houston in the film, said at the Republican National Convention, this government wants Pericardus alive or Rizuni dead. It, that kind of became the, kind of the whole slogan going, going forward. And basically, I got to where their, uh, Roosevelt is basically trying to pressure the Moroccan government, the Sultan, to deal with Razuli. Basically, we don't care what you have to do. You either kill him or you give him what he wants and he frees the hostage who's an American. So pick one, but do it. It's kind of the right. U.S.'s position at the time. Yeah. yeah. To the point that they even send ships in. And again, both in the film and in real life, they send like the seven naval ships in. The difference is that's mostly the extent of it in real life was having that naval presence and i think yes yeah, some marines were probably boots on the ground but in the film 
they get to the point where they basically in take they they take they they take over Morocco essentially. They like yeah, seize they, the government palace, put the American flag up, and I'm like, what? This is like a huge declaration of war. We just seized Morocco. Like that did not happen. Right, right, and not not only Morocco, but they also get in a battle where they're killing German soldiers. Yes, yes. yes. In 1904, yes, by the way, yeah. ten years before World War One, and there's there's Americans, American Marines, and German soldiers killing each other in Morocco. Right, that 100% would have started World War One if that had actually happened. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that that was more just to kind of make it a more interesting film, which is kind of almost a shame because like you didn't need it. We were already kind of like bought in. Like I was in with the movie before. Like, I didn't need to, if anything, that kind of took me out of it where I was just like, oh, come on. Like everything up to that point seemed mostly realistic. And then when the, we did, they did that, I'm like, uh, I'm not buying that. So uh, Tangier, it's in Morocco. It's on the northern point. Morocco even has kind of like that kind of shape to it where it kind of tapers up. And there's that little point that basically makes the Strait of Gibraltar with Spain. It's almost like both of those countries kind of like, almost like they're kissing each other. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's almost yeah. like these little points that go and then they almost touch. Tangier's right. basically at the tip of that, at the Strait of, Strait of Gibraltar. So it's only like 20 miles as the crow flies to go from Tangier to Spain across the water there and it's just kind of always been an important port city then obviously uh that's long had an international presence which is why you have people from all over the world living in tangier like pericaris here uh so the real life pericaris it's also funny man i feel like i spelled his name 18 different ways as i, I pick up my notes <laughs> every every instance is spelled different in your notes pretty much and then like google wants to recorrect it as uh pericarditis <laughs> for pericarditis <laughs> which is probably like some, some disease i'm not even really sure what that is okay is it that's a heart thing isn't it oh that's right that's right yeah i'm not a not a doctor yeah it says swelling and irritation of the pericardium which is the thin tissue surrounding the heart that's right okay yeah that's not who was kidnapped um <laughs> <laughs> he goes around stealing heart tissue from people yeah <laughs> No, so again, this it was this, again they completely changed that just to make the film more interesting because the dynamic between kidnapper and kidnappy when they they almost might kind of make it that she is because she's a widow in the film we didn't mention that it's her and her two kids and she is widowed um, when they're captured from her estate here just outside of Tangier so the whole Stockholm syndrome thing we do kind of see develop because at first she tries to escape in the film and then we realize that like or or, we, or she sees that hey at least. Uh, Razuli is keeping me safe and he is kind of charming and charismatic and so they kind of yeah. just that romantic tension there well and there's even at the beginning is she's like oh I'm you know I'm I'm kidnapped or whatever by this horrible barbaric guy who's like cutting people's heads off and right. like killed a bunch of my house like servants or whatever killed the British guy that I was hanging out with but then she tries to escape that one time and he you know Turns out that it was a trap, and she was actually like, "They're just selling her to someone else, right?" Going to get kidnapped again, right? And then he comes and kills all the kidnappers and saves her and the kids, right? And uh, and then he's like, re- you know, returns her to the house, and he's like, "Rasuli does not kill women and children," and it's like, "Oh, he was actually noble and honorable the whole time," right? Right? Oh, and by the way, this is kind of a side note to this side note, but the kids in this movie are kind of freaks. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're like they're like sitting there and like see a dude like two people get beheaded back to back and the the they have like no reaction the the little boy just looks like the little girl goes oh my gosh did you see that it's like uh yeah 
They just chop two guys' heads off right in front of us. And then that uh, courier or whatever shows up and he brings Razuli the tongue of some one of their enemies. And they're like poking it with their bare, like poking it with their fingers. Like, oh, look at this this tongue that this guy brought in this little golden dish. It was 1904, dude. It was either that or play with the hoop in the stick. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and so, so the kidnapping it, itself actually here too, real quick. So in it, it's not too dissimilar from what we see in the film. They had, they had this massive estate, Pericardus did. And Rizuli's forces did basically just break through and, and kidnap him and, and his stepson. We don't have a great... The, the number is kind of uncertain. It seems like about 100 men is probably the best guess. But it doesn't look like they actually killed anybody in the process. So the film just seems like they're just hacking down servants left and right, right to get the woman and her kids. I think they yeah. just maybe knocked a few guys out and ran off with the guy and his stepson. Like, I don't think they was, like, slaughtering... Uh, the servants on the estate as opposed to just kind of like knocking them out going straight to the target and getting out of there yeah oh something that i noticed in the uh in the portrayal of the kidnapping in the movie so while while that british guy's efforts were ultimately unsuccessful i did want to note that him having a gun did make it a lot harder for the attackers to to kidnap the family there so you want to stand your ground on me (laughs) (laughs) that little maybe maybe if he would have had a uh you know an ar-15 with a 30 round magazine maybe he would have uh, been able to keep everybody safe right maybe they'd all be dead logan you're right they'd all be dead good job (laughs) uh okay so pericardius himself so he was the Son of a Greek scholar and diplomat. So his dad was Greek, hence the name Perdicaris is, is a very Greek name. Uh, so his dad had come to the United States, again, as a scholar, diplomat, and then marries a woman from South Carolina. So he's uh, he's kind of this uh, product of a woman from South Carolina and a, a Greek diplomat. So kind of had a high, because I think his mom was kind of from money too down in South Carolina. So he had he's pretty well off his entire life. Uh, went to school, liked to write, uh, worked as a professor and a lawyer. During the Civil War, he actually became a Greek citizen just to avoid getting drafted in the Civil War. I mean, that kind of became an issue later with, like, the whole Roosevelt going to rescue him, you know, 30 years, 40 years after the fact. Because, like, oh, wait, did he actually, re- is he even American anymore? Or is he Greek now? And all these kinds of things. But I think officially he probably had dual citizenship, ultimately. Anyway, so he kind of is over in London, I believe, after the Civil War in the 1870s. And he basically steals a woman away from her husband. Just kind of like starts having an affair with her and then she runs off with him. And they ultimately settle in Tangier where they had a vacation home. So again, just kind of rich his whole life, working in London, meets this woman. They had kind of had a vacation home and then ultimately settle permanently in Morocco. So that's why Perdicardus and his wife and his family were in Morocco just basically living their vacation, essentially. And they got involved with, like, charities and just helping the poor people in Morocco. And so Perdicardus actually got in trouble for calling out corruption. So, like, the government was kind of on his butt because he was calling a spade a spade where they were, like, exploiting the common people or, you know, you know people are getting away with crimes because they have connections. And he was basically the outsider, you know, the American guy coming in and being like, you just call him BS on all these things to the point he even gets like arrested at one point for calling out corruption and then is ultimately, ultimately kind of released. And the Moroccan people kind of had then a lot of respect for Perdicardus because he was 
willing to stand up for injustices and stuff. So he's kind of had a, had a good reputation with the common people, even if the government thought he was a little bit of a nuisance. It's kind of who he was uh, in the 1870s, hmm. 80s, and 90s here. And their, uh, their mansion and estate that we... Well, probably not the one we see in the film. I guess I didn't look at that side of things. But the Pyrrhicardus estate is still in Tangier today and actually now operates as a heritage slash botanical park that you can visit. Huh. It's actually pretty big too. It's uh like like a hundred hundred it was either, probably if it was a hundred acres or a thousand acres. It was either way it was it was decent it was decent size. It's like at least a hundred acre yeah. estate. Yeah heritage slash botanical park you can go visit today. So that's kind of who Paradicaris was heading up to this point. And then the other side of Rizuli up to this this point, the Sean Connery character so he had kind of been inspired by the success of recent kidnappings. Like kidnapping was basically a viable profession for criminals at the time. So he himself had successfully negotiated a ransom from like kidnapping a British journalist at one point. He had kind of gotten into work. Mostly he was going after local Moroccans because that was kind of safer. You didn't raise international incidents if you're kidnapping local Moroccans and, and extracting ransoms. But yeah, essentially his his job was kidnapping people by by this point in in his life but his background before that we don't know a ton about him he did claim to be descended from muhammad uh which was not uncommon there would have been a lot of people descended from muhammad kind of what we've talked about just with how yeah genealogy works and a lot of us are probably descended from kings and queens of of england and all those kinds of things if we're northern european so uh and i actually did read somewhere i didn't write this down but i did read somewhere so we talked about the it maybe was uh multiple things that we've talked about in the Middle East in the past and the term Sharif being like what evolved into Sheriff. But then I swear I read somewhere where it said you could call yourself a Sharif if you could claim descent from Muhammad. And the Sharif was just anybody who was descended from Muhammad and can kind of like trace it back. I don't think the use of Sheriff like in English comes from Sharif though. Oh, okay. okay. I think that's a coincidence. Sheriff comes from, it's like, Shire Reeve. Oh, Shire, right. It's like the... Uh, like the Reeve of the Shire would have been, you know, a, a Shire, like a municipality okay. in England. Okay. And then you have the Reeve, who's the top local official tasked with basically law enforcement for the Reeve is the Shire. So that's the Shire Reeve. Okay. And that, that then morphs into Sheriff. Yeah. Okay. So that's unrelated to the Middle Eastern term. Or Okay. I'm pretty sure it is, okay. yeah, because okay. I think Shari- I think it's just uh, it's just one of those coincidences. Okay, so my main point though was that it was used for someone descended from Muhammad. Had you heard that before? I had not heard that before. Okay, okay. I I knew it's kind of like a almost like a nobility title type thing. Yeah, but I didn't okay. know that that was specifically like the definition of it. Okay, that's what I had read on his page. I I didn't do a deep dive uh, on that though. So yeah, he was he was this kind of virtuous, charismatic but also ruthless criminal guy. So he really kind of like we talked about with Jesse James, Rizuli was kind of mm. that type of guy where he, he could charm you. He was well-educated, but he also would chop your head off if you weren't on his side. <laughs> so kind of, yeah. which would they, they kind of do a good job of that in the film other than casting a Scottish guy. And <laughs> man, Sean Connery is a good actor. He has great presence. He cannot hide his Scottish accent. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's uh it's the same same thing when he's uh in the hunt for red october oh he's russian and he sounds scottish yeah ramius Mar- marco ramius when he's marco ramius in the hunt for red october and he is a russian submarine captain with a scottish accent and ev- 
everybody else in the movie is doing is doing Russian accents. Like Sam Neill's in that movie doing a Russian accent, and he's not Russian. Tim Curry's in the movie. Then you have the uh, the Scottish captain. Man, it's it's almost like okay. Sorry, I do think he's a better actor than John Wayne, but it's almost a John Wayne thing where you cast Sean Connery because you just want Sean Connery, and yeah. we'll build everything else around him. Yeah. Well, and this was 1975, so like <laughs> right. you know. Right. It's almost like they're passing off his Scottish accent as a North African accent. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's and he's almost trying. There's, there's times where he kind of then he does kind of bend it that way. And yeah. Yeah. I and I don't I don't think uh so like I I made a comment when we did Lawrence of Arabia about oh yeah, you know, we get to see like Alec Guinness and Brownface like pretending to be an Arab. And I think that's like Alec Guinness did a way better job, has a way better performance in Lords of Arabia than Sean Connery does in this movie. Oh, hands down, because Alec Guinness is again, I'm not I'm not anti Sean Connery, other than he's not good at accents. Right. Alec Guinness is a chameleon and can do anything. Right, yeah. There's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and Guinness is more of a character actor versus Connery is the leading man type. Correct. Yeah. Before all this too, supposedly Rizuli again, so like criminals were always kind of like Criming against each other too so like he has supposedly spent four years four years chained up in the dungeon of one of his criminal rivals when in his younger years before kidnapping kind of became his profession he was referred to and we they mentioned it in the film and it was a real life thing too he was kind of called the last of the barbary pirates he did have some ships that he would use for piracy but the kidnapping game kind of just became more profitable and he is all, all kind of like the Barbary pirate trade had essentially dried up by this point. So he was the last in the sense that he might have been the last one kind of actually hanging on to this old way of life. And even he kind of transitioned away from it. So like it was uh, not necessarily inaccurate to call him the last of the Barbary pirates. Which I guess the side note there is just that the uh, Barbary coast, which I had heard of, I heard of Barbary pirates, but I really didn't ever look into what that meant. It's just a term I had heard. So in pre-Arab North Africa, so you can just kind of different ethnic groups. So the Arabs are a different ethnic group than the Berbers. And so the Berbers are essentially the pre-Arab North Africans. So before Mm -hmm. uh, Islam and the Arabs moved in, you still had a North African population. Those were the Berbers. And so then the, the, all the countries along that coast were kind of Berber countries, or that was the Berber slash Barber Barbary coast. They make that distinction in the movie. Oh, right. They say in the film, he's not an Arab. He's a Berber. Yeah, because right. I think I think uh, Roosevelt says something about you know refers to him as like an Arab, and one of somebody on his staff says, "Oh, he's he's not an Arab. He's a Berber." Right now, at the same time, if he's claiming to be descended from Muhammad, then he's mixed. Of but yes, true. Uh, right, true. Right. And yeah, so piracy was just. I mean, in that side of the Mediterranean, piracy was an issue or issue there for centuries as far back as like the 12th century uh, and then all the way up through the early 18th century, not long before this film, Barbary pirates were a a massive issue that everyone in the area would have had to deal with. The term wasn't necessarily until the 16th century because they were making kind of a distinct region of the Ottoman Empire was when you would have first maybe heard people make a distinction and calling this the Barbary Coast just to kind of, yeah, as a region of the Ottoman Empire. Well, and... The Barbary Pirates, there was a Barbary Pirate War that the Americans were fighting in Libya in like the early, early 1800s. Oh, huh. So about 100 years before this movie. And that's where, just another little tidbit of Marine Corps history for you. 
Nice. This that's where in the Marine Corps hymn where the first line from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, that shores of Tripoli is that is from their uh participation in the Barbary Wars. Oh, okay. Nice, nice. So yeah, so in real life, now that's how the two came together. So you have Perdicardus is this American expat, plenty of money, living in Morocco, and is somewhat of a public figure through his helping of the common Moroccan people. And then you have this lifelong criminal who is essentially a professional kidnapper. So it was a match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Perdicardus is kidnapped. Um, and they kind of, they don't really do this in the film. I don't really know where they go. But in real life, they kind of ran up into the mountains. And in the process, uh, Perdicardus even broke his leg when his horse fell. And was having to deal with that kind of in the early stages of the time uh, that he was kidnapped. Although I don't think it led to anything serious. but. And then, yes, news gets out. Rezuli is making these demands of the Moroccan government to get the cash and uh, the political positions. Roosevelt and everybody back home, John Hay, are telling the Moroccans they need to deal with it. So that's all that all hap- that's all real life stuff. So the U.S. sends in kind of ships after ships just to kind of keep pressuring the Moroccan government. And then you do get so the film kind of highlights the Germany side of the international incident here. So obviously they kind of the, they show British and the French kind of raising their eyebrows, and the Germans, like you said, ends up being actual phys- conflicts and <laughs> deaths on both sides of Germans versus uh, Americans. That would not have happened. The Germans really didn't have a presence here in Morocco at the time. However, the Spanish were very concerned about these U.S. ships moving in. We mentioned how close, close obviously Morocco and Spain are just the tiny straight up Gibraltar apart this is also just after just six years after the end of the Spanish-American War and so the uh, Spanish were very concerned that the U.S. might try to like make a deal and end up with a Moroccan port under U.S. control right across from Spain and so Spain moves in ships too and tensions are really high here over this incident a messenger sent to Raizuli by the Sultan is executed and so just the pressure on the Sultan is I kind of just ends up too high. And the Sultan does ultimately pay the 70000 to Rizuli uh, and another $4,000 to the U.S. basically to cover our expenses for having to interfere, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. So we took money from the Sultan as well uh, over this. And a lot of the details <laughs> were actually kept secret uh, from the public for 30 years. So obviously, if Roosevelt's using it as a campaign thing, a certain level is public knowledge but i'm guessing the details of the deal were probably uh, kept under wraps a little a little longer from the public yeah so, so yeah so riley's Rizuli does he got he got the cash he got the political positions he actually he actually and then he you know releases perdicardus and so he quote wins um he kind of just continues to be a nuisance in morocco for the next couple decades more kidnappings more corruption he revolts against spanish influence in morocco during world war one he supposedly was working with the germans and he ultimately dies in 1925 in captivity and his reputation in morocco today continues to be mixed whether people see him as this kind of like freedom fighting hero or this criminal villain it's it's still very split how people feel about him today again jesse james is maybe the comparison again there where some people saw jesse Mm -hmm. james as folk hero and some people saw him as a criminal that needed to be stopped so I i think that's probably the best comparison and as far as pericardus after his release, he did leave Tangier, finally, after having spent a, a lot of time living there. They did leave after this, and he would just kind of travel around and lecture, specifically in the U.S., about Moroccan affairs. So if you wanted to go hear about 
Morocco in you know the 19 teens, you could go and listen to Pericardus give give a speech. He was just all kinds of rich, you know, the things we've already talked about. And then his dad had set up gas and oil companies in the U.S. And so he just kind of had just a passive income. Just he didn't really have to do anything else. He ultimately retired in England, uh, where he died in 1925, which actually is the same year as Rizuli, which is kind of interesting. And he did consider Rizuli his friend. So like scholars will talk about this as a example of Stockholm Syndrome, where hmm. uh, Pericardus did grow to consider Rizuli a friend and would advocate for him and defend him uh, whenever asked about him kind of thing, which I did do a deep dive on Stockholm Syndrome. And obviously we, had, we know what it means. It's basically when the kidnappees, people who are kidnapped, start to side with their captors and and develop uh, affection for them, whether either just yeah. romantic or friendly or whatever. It's actually not an official mental condition, though, like as far as like psychologists are concerned, because mm. basically, how do you study this? You can't study right. this. It's so yeah. it's, it's basically just interviewing victims. And so it's such a small sample size. You can't actually right. classify it as an official, but like, oh, like he's been diagnosed with Stockholm syndrome. Like it's, it's right. more just like a theory we can talk about as a thing, but it's not an official scientific designation gotcha so yeah so he was the lion he kind of sees them him Razuli sees himself as this you know proud fighter in morocco there he is the lion he is strong he is cunning and he is fierce and he describes roosevelt who he never actually meets as more this ethereal or whatever you would say presence where he kind of can like come and go and maybe affect morocco but then he's gone again kind of thing and he's more in the wind, in the air. So tell us all about good old Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, so right off the bat, this guy is, he's the one to beat for our most interesting person in American history. He's going to be a heavy hitter for sure, yes. He is going to be a heavy hitter for sure. He's definitely, I think he's the most interesting person we've talked about on the show so far. Okay. Um, On... Uh, for for American history. For American history, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely some big candidates on the world history side too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm curious to learn more about Teddy Roosevelt here. So he was born on October 27th in 1858. He was a kind of sickly, um, asthmatic child. So he didn't go to school growing up. He was uh, tutored in his house by tutors that his family hired. His family did have quite a bit of money, so that was uh, something that was. Not really that big of a deal for them. Growing up, he loved to read, loved to read um, stories about old conflicts and read, you know, classic, classic literature. He was very interested in like natural history um, and in, in animals. He actually had a collection of animals, dead animals that he kept in the house. He was like a self- Like taxidermied? He was a self-taught taxidermist. Mm, yikes. And was also interested in, in, inter- in insects and stuff. And so he had this collection of stuffed animals and insects in his house, and he called it the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. When he was like 10? <laughs> yeah, when he was like a little kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It said he, when he was like, when he was a little boy, he was on a trip to the market, and there was a dead seal just kind of at, at the market. It, it was in New York. And so he would go to this seal and would like take measurements and drawings and stuff, and then eventually just took the seal and taxidermied it, and that was like his. That was like the first uh, animal that he put in his museum of natural history, and he mm. and he kept that up throughout his childhood. In 1869, when he was 11 years old, he went on a tour of Europe with his family. He was not a big fan of Europe. Didn't really like 
you know, the fancy hotels and restaurants and stuff, but he did like exploring and climbing the mountains and, and the old ruins and castles and everything. Um, the following year, he went on a trip to the Middle East and the Mediterranean area, oh, wow. and he liked that trip a lot more, liked that history and, and that area more. He enjoyed that trip. And he also really liked shooting exotic birds on that trip. So he <laughs> shot a bunch of birds and stuffed them and brought them back to his uh, Museum of, of Natural History. At age 13, he had this kind of bullying incident um, where he got picked on on a train going up to to Maine for a just kind of like a retreat. And he because he was kind of frail and sickly, he got picked on and bullied. And so after that, he began training boxing he started lifting and running and became like obsessed with getting as strong and fit as possible so he wouldn't get bullied anymore which that's so cool. Oh, he found his he found his big stick. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> which they mentioned the big stick thing in the film a couple of times, don't they? Yes, yeah, they yeah. do. And actually like it's probably four or five times that yeah, that yeah. they bring it up and it's not him either. It's like other people like the uh the ambassador to the sultan keeps saying like, you know, don't make me bring out the big stick. He's like, you know what, you know what the big stick is, don't you? Like they they make reference to speak softly, carry a big stick yeah. uh, a bunch of times. He started attending Harvard University in 1875. Uh, while he was at Harvard, he was on the rowing team. He debated, and he was also a member of elite clubs like uh, the Fly Club and the Porcellion. He got married to Alice Lee, his first wife, in 1880, the same year that he graduated Harvard. After he graduated Harvard, he went to law school at Columbia, but he kind of became disenchanted with his law studies and instead decided to write a book on naval battles in the War of 1812. Nice. And, you know, decided he didn't want to be a lawyer, but instead he went into politics. At the time, politics were not considered like an elite high class thing. So for someone of his social and economic status, that would have been considered beneath his station to go into politics. Huh. Because it was kind of, it was, you know, you would want to portray yourself as like an elegant, upstanding member of society, whereas politics was seen at that time, especially like state level politics was seen as kind of like scummy and like almost like uh, like used car salesman yes. type type vibe. That's not very different. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but but today, though, like pretty much every politician is independently rich before they go into politics. That's true. Where at, as at that time, it would have been like, oh, you're not like you're not an actual like elite rich person. You're just you're just a politician. You're just a politician, right? Huh. Ugh. Wait, which is better? Those are both gross. Yeah, I don't know. So is it better to have today, where they're all rich before they can even run, or is it better to have back then, where they're not rich but they're all just slimy you car salesmen? Oh, this, oh, politics is gross. Right, and it's almost like they see it as a shortcut to get. Maybe not as rich as a Roosevelt, but like, you know, to make a little money. And influence and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Politics is just kind of gross in general, to be honest. Yeah. So he wins his first election and becomes a member of the New York State Assembly um, as a member of the Republican Party in 1882. Around this time, he starts to kind of develop his political persona. He's a big believer in self-determination, but also sees that there's a lot of unfairness and corruption that keeps the downtrodden down. And so that's kind of his thing that he wants to change. He starts making trips out west around this time. He makes his first hunting trip to the Dakotas in 1883 and buys a ranch there. In 
1884, he gets super heavily depressed after his wife and his mother both die on the same day. February 14th, 1884. Just a coincidence? It wasn't like the same event or anything? No, because I think it was with the wife. It it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like a, it wasn't an accident. It was a, they were both sick. And it was just kind of a, they just both happened to be sickly at the same time and then died within hours of each other on february 14th 1884 so he was super depressed retires from politics and moves out to his ranch in the dakotas when he gets there he kind of starts cosplaying as a cowboy he would like always carry a you know dress in the the buckskin and like carry a knife and gun and like the people that were there who had been there their whole lives were like this rich asshole moves out here from New York and wants to pretend to be a cowboy now? Like, what a douchebag. That's true. He has his reputation as this rough-and-tumble guy. He's just a rich guy from New York who liked rough-and-tumble stuff. Right. He 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 did do the rough-and-tumble stuff, too. Right, right. But but he wasn't, he he wasn't, wasn't born, born into in a, yeah. Right. He wasn't born into the rough-and-tumble. He, like, went and sought that out later on in life. So he he was kind of pretending to be a cowboy, but he did actually work hard and did contribute to his ranch and help his ranch hands out a lot. So he act- he did earn the respect and the admiration of those who worked with him and worked for him. But I just thought that it was funny that when he first got there, people were like, who's this? Who's this asshole? <laughs> and I have, I have been there. So when I went, uh, the one and only time I went through North Dakota, kind of on a detour to get to Montana, just to check North Dakota off the list. The place we stopped was Teddy Roosevelt National Park, which is, which is essentially just oh, that right. ranch that he donated to the federal government later. Yeah. So uh, while he was in North Dakota, he also became a deputy sheriff for a little while because he was bored, I guess. And there's an incident where he helped capture like three boat thieves in uh, in Billings County, North Dakota. Hmm. And it was a three-day trip back to the jail to incarcerate them for stealing a boat right and so he stayed awake he stayed awake for three days oh my god to make sure that none of them escaped huh. on this trek back to back to wherever he was putting him in jail you don't think about teddy roosevelt i so, saw okay you always think about him as like the nature guy and you know the rough and tumble stuff you're talking about but this is kind of the tail end of the old west still so we talk about yeah you know, the old west kind of ends with you know the death of Jesse James in 1882, but then this is like still hanging on just after yep. that, and so yep. I guess Roosevelt's almost this uh, neo old west kind of figure there, huh? Yeah, yeah. And so, so for context, uh, the reason that he ends up leaving North Dakota and to put this on the timeline, he had like half of his cattle die in the winter of 1886 and 1887, which was a super harsh winter. And so that's what forced him to leave North Dakota, or that's what was the impetus for him leaving North Dakota and going back to New York. That was the same winter that drove the Sundance Kid out of Colorado. So the Sundance Kid was a rancher in Colorado, and a bunch of the cattle that on the ranch that he was working on died, and that's why he had to go to Montana. That same harsh winter. That same winter of 1886, 1887. Huh. So, that's like the stuff that I love the most about doing this. The overlaps. Is realizing those those little overlaps and those little connections and just like that's a com- it's a random natural phenomenon, a super harsh winter. And it out of that winter comes both Roosevelt returning to political life in New York and the Sundance kid becoming an outlaw. Well, 
and something we're going to talk about more uh, when we get to the side note here that'll be on Patreon. But 1904, when this incident happened, that's the same year that Butch Cassidy, or actually probably one of the Sundance Kid and at a place went to the St. Louis World's Fair. That's also 1904. Like that's yep. all happening at the same same time there. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So he goes he goes back to New York. Marries his second wife, Edith Kermit Crow, who was a childhood friend in 1886. Oh, okay. I, I want to pause here and, and go back real, real quick. There is a photograph of Abraham Lincoln's funeral procession through New York City in 1865. Okay. And in that photograph, there is an apartment building that's facing Union Square. And you can see two little boys standing. Nuh-uh. In the window, watching the funeral procession, it's Teddy Roosevelt and his brother. No way. That's yeah, crazy. you can see the picture on Wikipedia, actually. Hang on, let me see if I can... And say, send me a link to that picture. That's crazy. Again, just the layers of history of all that stuff. I really, again, which is, I mean, honestly, that's the whole reason we started doing this in the first place, was because of those yeah. neat connections and, and seeing connections, how one character of one movie is the grandfather of a character in another movie. And like that's kind of what was the inspiration for this whole thing. But yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And for, you know, for some reason in my mind, and I think it's because Roosevelt is is kind of synonymous with turn of the century America, because right. he did go from like the old West guy and then becomes, you know, the president in the early 1900s. Right. So you think 1890s into the 1920s, and that's about the whole extent of his life. Yeah. Right. So I, I just imagine him being like pretty far removed from like Civil War history and Abraham Lincoln. But the fact that he was he would have been what, eight or nine years old. Right. When Lincoln was assassinated and and witnessed the funeral procession, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of amazing. And when he was in college writing that book about the War of eighteen twelve, that's something else. Where I think, oh man, that's like, boy, that seems like that would have been like you know pretty far removed to have him less than hundred years ago. Right. right. There's less separation between him writing that book and the War of eighteen twelve than there is about me if I wrote a book about World War Two. Right. Right. Or even Korea, probably. Yeah. 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 Which is crazy. Well, I'm just thinking just too, like so as you're formed this picture here that I'm excited to see that like, if only that photographer would know, could know kind of thing. So you're taking a picture just of Lincoln's procession going through New York, not realizing you just took a picture of a future president of the United States as a child at the same time. Yep. Yeah. It says his, so his six-year-old Theodore and his five-year-old brother, Elliot watched the funeral procession from a second floor window. Oh, and his, his second wife was also present in that same apartment because they were childhood friends. Uh-huh. And so it is confirmed that that apartment is the one, and that is him in the photo. So if you look in the photo, it's the rooms facing the camera. It's the middle one. You can see two little heads there, if you look really closely, on the second floor. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the window is actually facing the camera versus the ones that are kind Correct. of facing the street. Yep. Yeah, so another little uh, coincidence of history. Okay, so you can, you can hardly even tell they're people, which is like two little, yeah, because this I guess it is a picture from 1865, but... uh that's right. still crazy. Yeah. Huh. Just like just like you can see John Wilkes Booth in the background of that uh inaugural address or whatever. Abraham Lincoln uh inauguration photo. You know, it's like little little uh historical connections like that are are kind of are super interesting to me. Yeah, I was just talking to about oh, family was over last night and we were talking about just how we perceive things and like however it came up, I was like like the fact that the 19th century was in full color just like today and my brother starts <laughs> nodding like yeah isn't that crazy like you just don't think about 
So this was full. <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah, I don't know. It's. Hey, we dig this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after he moves back to New York, he decides to go back into politics and he runs for mayor of New York but gets third place. And this is a lesson in never give up on your dreams even when they seem unachievable yeah. because after he loses the mayoral race he's like oh, that's it I'm, I'm probably done with politics like i'm probably not ever going to be an influential politician never going to run for anything again and was uh, just was just gonna not be in any elections anymore after that theodore roosevelt one of the greatest presidents in american history almost quit politics because of it what, was, what year was that mayoral election uh, that would have been 1888, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. So not long after he got back from the Dakotas, okay. Right. And then two years later, he's the vice president. Uh, oh, wait, no, 12 years later. So he gets a couple of appointments, like appointed political positions after this mayoral race. In 1894, he's appointed to the New York Board of Police Commissioners, and he actually basically overhauled the New York Police Department and modernized it. He's almost single-handedly responsible for turning it from a, you know, kind of corrupt political organization into a professional law enforcement agency. Hmm. So he's the guy who implemented regular inspections of firearms. Before that, you just had whatever gun you had and, you know, did whatever condition it was in was fine. Before Teddy Roosevelt. After, when he came in, he's like, no, we're going to make sure that everyone's, like, guns are working. Hmm. institutes annual physical exams so you have to be in in good health he's the first person to suggest that maybe they start getting recruits based on their physical and mental qualifications as opposed to just whoever shows up no no instead of just whoever uh wants political power so if you got if your buddy was high up in the police force he would just appoint all of his buddies to be cops and then they would all just have this massive political power and oh, teddy wow. roosevelt is like guy who's like we can't be doing that. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense. Is, I don't know if you get into the, the trust busting, but like breaking up corrupt institutions and corrupt practices was kind of his whole jam, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and he also had phones installed in all the station houses. So before Teddy Roosevelt. So he's modernized. He's modernizing. It was a word of mouth type yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. Modernizing, standardizing, and and gutting the corruption from the, from the NYPD. Right. So, I mean, so much of that is just... That's really just turning the 19th century into the 20th century that he's kind exactly. of driving that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. In 1897, he was appointed the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And this is actually, I think, one of the most interesting parts of his life. So he's the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. On February 15th, 1898, there's the War. whole main explosion, right, which precipitated the Spanish-American War. He resigns as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy to join the army as a colonel and forms the the first US volunteer cavalry or the rough riders so that he can go fight battles. He was like at like 40 years old. The number yeah. 2 guy in the in the navy resigns so that he can go get on a horse and go kill Spanish soldiers in Cuba. He reminds me a lot of Churchill and we forget that he's way older than Churchill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, not way older, but older. <laughs> Yeah, he is, yeah, significantly older. Okay. So he is uh, goes to Cuba uh, with the cavalry, fights in a few battles there, including the Battle of Kettle Hill on July 1st, 1898, where he was, in 2001, posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions on that day. He's the only president oh, really? 
to have won the Medal of Honor. Ah, uh, okay. That's a pretty good distinction. Yeah. And actually, the reason that he didn't get it at the time was because the higher-ups in the army thought that he was just headline-grabbing by, like, resigning his position and going to fight, and that it was all, like, a stunt, and so they didn't want to give him a Medal of Honor, even though he was serving with distinction and, you know, risking his life for his men. They were like, we don't want to give you the Medal of Honor because that's, like, that would be basically rewarding behavior that we don't like. Like, we honestly, we wish that you never would have come into the army in the first place type thing. I was going to, i sorry, just jump, just jump to say, like, Churchill is surprisingly only 16 years younger than Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. well, I guess I just... I knew they'd be pretty close because Teddy Roosevelt was young in 1904 when he was president. Right, and he died relatively young. He was only 60 when he died. It, it, right, and died younger. And and Churchill was youngish when, like, we're during World War One, just 10 years later. So that's why I was like, it had to be right. kind of close. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this, that, that you know what? That's a good point. It's because he was president so young, it does make him seem a lot older. Because he was only 42 yeah, when he yeah. became president. Right. Yeah, so he goes and fights in the Spanish-American War. Afterwards, he comes back and he runs for governor of New York, basically reinvigorates his service in the war, reinvigorates his political career, and he wins the race for governor in 1898. So he as governor of New York, is big into a few things. One is anti-monopoly stuff, trust-busting, anti-corporate stuff, pro-labor, anti-corruption, and also real, really big into uh, preservation of like natural beauty and natural resources. So that's like his whole, that's, that is then basically what he carries on into his presidential career, is all those things that he runs on and is doing while he's the uh, governor of New York. I'm just thinking about, it's crazy though, too, how the uh, political cycles have probably changed because, so if he's, I mean, spoiler alert, he's going to be VP in 1900 here, but like right. that that's just two years after he gets elected as governor of New York that he Correct. put on the VP ticket. But like yep. in today's world, McKinley would start, would already have been running for president at the time. Yeah. Because and yeah, I guess you name your VP later, but he basically would have only been in the job for like, by today's standards, he would have been on the job for like six months to a year when McKinley would be naming him VP, which is not impossible, but just seems less likely today than it would have back then with that timeline. Yeah. Yeah. So like you said, he he does get the VP spot, actually reluctantly accepts the VP spot in 1900 oh, really? to run with McKinley. Why was he reluctant? Um, I think he... I don't think he wanted to appear that he was like climbing the ladder too fast, maybe, or or he oh, wanted right. had more stuff that he wanted to do in New York. Right, not take a backup position that doesn't actually have much to do. Right, he's a man of action. The VP is not a job of action. <laughs> right, uh, but he ends up taking the spot anyway, and then McKinley gets assassinated, and he becomes president, the twenty sixth president, on September fourteenth, nineteen oh one at 42 years old and up to that point he was the youngest person ever to assume the office in 1902 there's the famous teddy bear incident so obviously the teddy bear is named after theodore teddy roosevelt he was on a hunting trip in mississippi with the governor of mississippi and a few other people and it was kind of a competition and most of the like the hunting party that he was with they had all already gotten animals and he hadn't gotten one and so his assistants trying to like be proactive and, you know, suck up to the big guy 
they like capture and tie to a tree a black bear basically like hey mr president like you can just like shoot this bear Hmm. it's tied to a tree like set up ready to go for you and he didn't want to because that's not sporting yeah because it's not sporting in order to subdue the bear they did club it so it was like dying so he did have it killed like to be put out of its misery but he wasn't gonna shoot it just like for fun right but then there was a famous political cartoon that came out of him refusing to shoot the bear and then that kind of with the mass production then of like stuffed animals the teddy bear became a a staple in like american society for kid, like yeah. as a toy that you would get for kids, and so that was 1902. What about the uh, so the bear they're stuffing for him in the film? Is that supposed to be the same one? No, I think that that's because uh, that that this would have been it would have been years later. That was that, that would have been 1904 in the movie, right? And this incident is 1902. Which I mean, is, but I, I don't know if it took two years to taxidermy something back then. Or no, 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 because yeah. the bear the bear that they're stuffing in the movie, I think that's a fictional. It it might be bait. Well. I, he went on so many hunting expeditions. It's, Fair enough. It's, he probably did shoot a bear at some point in his life. <laughs> okay. But the one that they're stuffing in the movie, thats they have that whole thing where they're talking. There's like the reporters, and he talk about how he's on this hunting expedition, and the camp is attacked by a grizzly bear, and he's, he's like, oh, I was forced to shoot it. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. he said, you know, we're the you know, intruders here, not the bear. Like, this yes. is his land type thing, and he had, gives that whole speech. So it's I don't it's not supposed to be the same bear as the teddy bear, and that's also not then I guess I almost got the feeling that like there's not like a Teddy Roosevelt shot bear in the Smithsonian today or anything like that, that you're aware of, or is there? I don't know. Hang on, let me let me look real fast. I say to me that felt real in the film, but I didn't know if that I didn't look it up. It looks like there's an actual teddy bear, like a stuffed animal, like a, a toy bear from 1903 in the Smithsonian, made by. Morris and Rose Mitchum, who created the first teddy bear, but it doesn't. Okay, I don't know if. Hang on, let me let me see if I can reword this search. Because it also might not be Smithsonian. There could be. I mean, someone else could have a stuffed teddy. I mean, he said he shot lots of stuff. He was in the taxidermy. You would think that something that Roosevelt killed is actually still around today, taxidermied, almost like for sure. Let's see. So there's the American Museum of Natural History, which I think that's the one in New York. That's not okay. the Smithsonian, but it had, they have, but there is something, they up. have several, they have several animals. Oh, okay. So they have a bunch of the, of his like animals that he personally killed. Okay. From bird skins to elephant tusks that are stored away, like in storage in the museum, but on display, I think they do have an owl that he killed. So yeah, there are in existence today, still a bunch of taxidermy animals that, Roosevelt killed. Teddy Roosevelt actually did kill. Huh. But as far as the bear, the grizzly bear, that I, I, I don't know. It's possible. Right. You know what we need to do? We need to, just, we need to uh, ask the listeners to donate enough money to us that we can go on an expedition to Washington, D.C. and, and find out for ourselves. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash history and film. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, so during his time as president... He was, again, like you said, big into donating land or protecting a lot of land, uh, especially out west. He actually founded the U.S. Forest Service that was founded under his presidency. Construction began on the Panama Canal in May of 1904. That was kind of like a pet project of his. 
which we see in the movie he's talking about all the time because he was a he was pro imperialism and he was also very i don't know if affectionate is the right word but he loved the navy they had the great white fleet which was like the big symbol of american imperialism at the time and so the panama canal was like his baby he wanted the great white fleet to be able to go back and forth between the Atlantic and the Pacific way easier without having to go all the way down around the southern end of of South America there. Uh so in this is and this brings us to the point in our timeline where the movie takes place, the incident that we just talked about, that was in 1904. He's now running for election in 1904, yeah. Yep. So running for re-election, which he wins. Technically not re-election though, right? Because he's, he wasn't elected in the first place. Okay, yeah, he ru- running for election as the incumbent. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah. weird distinction. Sorry. Right. It's yeah, and it is one of those things where yeah, he he is the incumbent, but he also did serve almost an entire f- first term because McKinley was assassinated in 1901, the first it was the first year. And actually, he was the first person to be president that wasn't elected who was running as an incumbent to then win re-election or to win that election to go into the next term. Right, right. It's been done. It's been done since then. LBJ did it. Right, because I'm trying to think. Was it because? Oh, cause, wait. Johnson was never reelected. Or wait, no, I'm confused now. No, Johnson wasn't reelected. Oh no, sorry. Lyndon Johnson was, but that was after. I'm I'm talking about Andrew Johnson was not reelected. Huh? Did he? Did, oh, sorry. Did he run? Meaning, meaning. I was thinking there was. I was then. Okay, I was thinking there was something like. Oh. The, he didn't actually. He didn't lose the election. Is what I'm getting at. Oh right, right, right. I, I that I don't. I I, I, okay. I have to go back and look actually now because I was thinking Ford was the first person in that situation because uh, Nixon resigned. That Ford was the first person to not get elected because they either won or didn't run. Oh, okay. I think you're right. So so Ford was the first to lose an election. Oh. He okay, so he got, Johnson got impeached, and then he did try. I, okay, I don't know if it counts as running. Oh, because he didn't get the party nomination. It, it depends on what you count as running, because he was trying to get the nomination, but he just didn't get nominated in eighteen ninety or eighteen sixty eight. He didn't even get the party nomination. Okay, yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure Ford is the only first one to actually lose in the general. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting. You're right. So Johnson did kind of lose the election because he didn't win the election and he did run. But he wasn't actually even in it by the time it mattered. Okay, interesting. Right. Yeah, I guess that would have been the only other... Was That that was the only other assassination? Or a death in office? No, uh, who took over for Garfield? Who took over for Garfield? Oh, uh, uh... Arthur. 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 Well, yeah, so... W- did Arthur not run either? Or not get his nomination either? Hang on. Researching on the fly, because we know you're interested too. I bet he didn't get the party nomination either. Which we've already already talked about, but we just didn't talk about it in this context. So, so eighty four election would be. So he was he was only in office for four years. Let's see if he. Well, not not even four years because he he's only president from September of eighty one to March of eighty five. Right when Garfield got assassinated. Yeah. Right. So then he. It's let's see he. Suffering from poor health, he made only a limited effort to secure the nomination in 1884, which was only a couple of years before this, and then retired at the end of his term. Gotcha. So, yeah. Oh, you're right. So, in the 1884 election, Cleveland beat Blaine, not Arthur. Yeah, okay. Honestly, it goes back. It's, it's, I, I blame my dad for this side note here, because he always just made a big point. He's a history guy, too. He's always made a big point that, like, 
Ford is the only president to never get elected, but it's actually he's the only president to ever lose a general election and never and never. So, oh, sorry, to never win a general election. Or no, how would you how would you phrase that? There is a distinction there. Editor Rich jumping in here to put myself out of my misery. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Ford wasn't on the ticket in '72 when Nixon first ran. So Ford is the only president to never get elected in the sense that he wasn't the VP listed when his president, who didn't finish his term, was elected. Teddy Roosevelt was on the ticket. Lyndon Johnson was on the ticket. Andrew Johnson was on the ticket. Ford wasn't on the ticket in 72. That's the distinction. Spiro Agnew had been Nixon's VP, and he resigned amidst his own scandal that had nothing to do with Watergate, with tax evasion and bribes and stuff. And incidentally, following the death of William Henry Harrison, his vice president, John Tyler, also did not secure his party's nomination at the next election. Anyway, where were we? Roosevelt. 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 1904. To your point, you are correct. He's the first person, first, what would you, how would you say, the first president to win re-election without having won the first time. Right, to to assume the office after the death of a president and then win. successfully run for president. Yeah. successfully run as the incumbent and okay. and become president so that is correct yes okay yeah so it, in uh 1904 1905 at this time the uh russo-japanese war was going on and roosevelt successfully mediated the treaty of portsmouth between russia and japan and that actually won him the nobel peace prize in 1906 so just a quick rundown of his resume real fast he's a nobel peace prize winner a Medal of Honor recipient, and a President of the United States. And a Deputy Sheriff in Billings County, North Dakota. Okay, yeah, not, not many people uh, can make that claim, eh? <laughs> so after, or towards the end of his second term, he decides not to run for a third term because he doesn't want to turn his presidency into, his words, a dictatorship. So very much go, and he probably could have could have won a third term because he was really popular. So, so yeah, that wasn't. Uh, of course, this also, I guess, this is pre his cousin, other Roosevelt. But like, so he, he's almost like, how do you count that? Was that a second? You know, what I'm saying like, does the first term count since it wasn't his? It's considered first and second term could because the first term was almost an entire first term as president, and then he wins re-election, so that's his second term as president. I guess so. Under sorry, under the current constitution then would he be allowed to run for that third term that i don't know okay because i was actually watching a video about reagan the other day and the guy was speculating basically uh, it was a whole speculation video on if reagan's assass- the assassination attempt on reagan had been successful if hinkley had actually killed reagan and basically he he was saying bush then would not have been allowed to run in 88 and i was like i don't think that's true because i thought the first term was not his and then if he wins in 84, he could run again in 88. This guy was a historian who said, that's not correct. I never actually looked it up to see what the reality was. Yeah, I don't know. Because where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? If it's the last month and then I am. A, so I would think that you would not make a distinction. I thought you could successfully run for president twice. And the first one, even if it was four years, doesn't count because you didn't weren't the one that ran. Well, we can uh, we can go look and see. We can go look at the 22nd Amendment and see what it says about uh Let's see. No person shall be elected to the office of president. Okay. No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. And no person who has held the office of the president or acted as president 
for more than two years of a term to there which some is. other person okay. was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. So there is a line if it's it's and it's at two years. If you get killed at two years and one day, the person that is president is killed and you're the vice president. You can win once. That's that's considered your term. You get one more after that. If it's one year and 364 days, you can run twice. Gotcha. So the most a person can be president now is 10 years. Right. If they're if they were vice president, the president gets killed at exactly two years and then they serve two four-year terms after. Or resigns or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Then they can, yeah, they, they could have been president for 10 years. So that guy on the video is right. He just didn't explain why he was right. It was because it, the, the attempt on Reagan occurred. Less than two years into his term. Yes, yes. Right, because it was only like two months into his term. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. We are side-noting the heck out of this episode. I know. I know. All for free. All for free. (laughs) Okay, so he decides not to run for a third term, goes on an expedition hunting trip to Africa. But then, while he's in Africa, he's only away from politics for less than four years. And his successor, Taft, had taken the Republican Party into a direction that Roosevelt considered too conservative. And so he came back and wanted to primary Taft and run again. Because at the time, you could run for as many terms as president as you wanted. There was no limit, right. technically. Right. It was, just, it was just a tradition, not a rule. Right. So he came back, and he was going to primary Taft for the Republican nomination, but lost. And so then decided, well, to hell with that, that I'm just going to form my own party. Call it the, progr- moose. the Progressive Party. Right. The Bull Moose. And, you know, best case scenario, I'm president. Worst case scenario, Taft's going to lose. Oh, so he was fully okay sabotaging Taft in that regard. Like, he wasn't necessarily thinking he could win. I I think he thought he could win. But it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, well, what's the worst outcome? The worst outcome is Taft wins. But if I run, Taft definitely isn't going to win. I might win, but Taft definitely isn't going to win. That's funny. And is that how Wilson gets elected? Yes. So, but real quick. Roosevelt survived his own assassination attempt in October of 1912 when he was on the campaign trail. I knew he got shot. I didn't realize it was that late. I didn't realize it was after he was president. Okay. Yeah. So it was. he was on the campaign trail. A gunman shoots at him and it hits him exactly like it was a, like a great center mass, like right into his heart shot. But he had a manuscript for a speech that he was not going to use. He was like, had it, you know, like an old manuscript and a glasses case. And so it slowed down the bullet. He did end up getting shot. Like the bullet was went into his pec muscle. But it slowed down so much. Yeah. Right. It stayed there for the rest of his life. He had that bullet in his chest. But the glasses case and the manuscript slowed down the bullet enough that it did not go through his rib cage and into his heart. Right. And he still gave the speech right after. And he still gave the speech. Yeah. Right. And he so he he gets shot. They, you know, the security like tackles the guy. They subdue him or whatever. And then he gets up and gives a speech and he says, oh, it'll take more than that to kill a bull moose. How do you not win? <laughs> that stuff is still in North. That's in North Dakota too. You can go see that shirt. Yep. Yeah. So at at time of recording, he that's the most successful third party run. He actually got second place. So at as a third party oh. candidate, he got more percent of the vote. Taft was third. Yeah, he got more. Well, I, electorally, I don't know how it works out, but he got oh, more percent gotcha. of the popular vote than than Taft did. But basically, what happened was he split the Republican vote. So. Like, half voted for Taft, half voted for him, and then that let 
Woodrow Wilson, who was the Democratic nominee, won uh, the election in 1912. After that election, he continued to go on his trips and his expeditions. He got tropical fever in 1914 and also injured his leg on an uh, expedition to South America. And basically, just for the next few years, dealing with complications from the injury, complications from the fever, and then also getting malaria and having a bunch of other health problems, um, he ends up dying of illness uh, on January 6, 1919. Uh, Sorry, I was just looking up the electoral map from 1912. Taft won two states, Utah and Vermont. Roosevelt won six states. And Wilson won the last rest. So Wilson won in a landslide because of the split, like you're saying. But he, so he did even, did he win electorally then as well over Taft? I mean, he beat Taft electorally? Yeah. So like, so Wilson, because of the split, Wilson lands in a landslide with 435 electoral votes. Roosevelt got 88 electoral votes. Oh, and Taft Uh, only got eight. Taft only got eight. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Which kind of makes sense if like the more popular member of the party runs as a third party. You know, it'd be like if Obama came right. back and ran against Biden, guess who's getting right. more votes? Uh, well, this is it's actually kind of a current event thing because you see that uh, RFK Jr., who was primarying Biden as a Democrat, is now going to run as a third party candidate. I don't know if it's <laughs> how much that's going to change anything. Yeah, since he's like he's a quote Democrat, like I can't imagine he's actually pulling anybody. Well, everybody always pulls somebody, but like. I mean, you could run and pull several votes from both parties just because people will vote for whoever's out in front of them. Some people will. Yeah. I just don't see he's a, he's, I don't, I mean, yeah, TBD, but he's not really a Democrat. Like, he, he's just a crazy, he's just a crazy person. Yeah. Well, he, his dad would be ashamed of him. It's kind of sad, actually. He's also not the only, he's also not the only person that wants to primary Biden. Uh, like, Marianne Williamson is also running as, for the Democratic nomination. No, right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a primary challenge for an 80 year old candidate, but like, right. RFK is not a serious contender or a serious person. No, 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 no. I, I'm just saying. I just brought him up as the example of someone who's going from Democrat to oh, third to party. independent to run third party. That's fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, this is kind of off topic, and honestly, you don't have to put this in the episode. But I, I do think it's a shame. That uh, the DNC is like, oh, we're just not going to hold any debates. We're not going to have any kind of like... I agree, but it's not uncommon. I know it's not uncommon, but I I don't like it. I mean, the RNC didn't do it last year, last four years ago either. Right, I know. And I have, you know, I have a problem with that too. I think both of us are independent for a reason. (laughs) Right, yeah. I I think that like you should, every time, it doesn't matter if if your party has the incumbent or not, you should have debates, you should have a primary everything. Well, they have a primary anyway. Hundred percent, and they don't do it because they don't want to weaken their own candidate. And Correct. the problem is, like, that's a newer thing. And back in these days, like we're talking about, they would have had no question with it. That was the norm was to have right. a primary, and you had to always right. earn your spot. And the idea that that people within a party will basically bow down, I, yeah, it infuriates me. And of course, again, there's a reason I think we're both registered independent. Anyway, a plague on both their houses is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that. That was all. That's everything on uh, on Teddy. All the way up to his death. Okay, we uh, we're going long here. So much much briefer on John Hay, <laughs> who we see in the film as a Secretary of State, played by one of my favorite actors, John Huston. Largely just because I love. I've talked about it before on the podcast. John Huston's voice might be my favorite voice in the history of humans. I just love this guy's <laughs> voice. It's oh, it's so awesome. I love his voice. 
If you're not familiar with John Hughes, especially when he's, Gand- he's Gandalf in like the animated Lord of the Rings from the 70s, oh, man, the guy's voice is just, I don't even know, just butter. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he plays John Hay, Secretary of State under Roosevelt here in the film, accurately. He was born in 1838 and was a young lawyer in Springfield, Illinois at just the right time to join abraham lincoln's campaign for the presidency so he just just basically right place right time he's a young lawyer who knows a young lincoln who's has you know first senate and then uh presidential aspirations so yeah he works on lincoln's campaign uh when lincoln is elected president john hay served as one of his private secretaries so i mean in theory he could have i don't think he did but he could have made a cameo in the film lincoln john hay could have been one of the men in the background kind of working for the president there uh, he was at Lincoln's deathbed after he was shot. John Hay would have been right there. So he was, though, more of a public servant on the backside thing or backside of things. I couldn't find anywhere that he actually ran for office. He would just be the guy who politicians hire to work for them after the fact and kind of did that his whole career. He was a diplomat and a writer, did ultimately serve as Secretary of State under McKinley, and then was kept on by Roosevelt after the McKinley assassination. Um, it was actually Hay who negotiated all the treaties that made the Panama Canal possible. Um, and then so even though he was only in his mid-60s when all this was happening, like the 1904 pericardus thing, Panama Canal kind of all happened at the same time, uh, Hay's health actually faded pretty quickly following the pericardus affair. Pericardus, kind of just coincidental, but it does seem like stress of the job in general was kind of what contributed to his decline in health. Um, so not specifically the Pericardus affair, but just the stress of being Secretary of State, honestly. Uh, and then he actually died in 1905, uh, the year following this film. So you don't realize that in the, you're watching the film that that character is not long for the world. So because he was also a writer, though, you could argue, and there's not necessarily a, I mean, Lincoln was going to be famous and popular kind of no matter what with everything we've talked about before with President Lincoln. But you could argue John Hay is a big reason we view Lincoln with this almost like deified quality that we that we do today. And John Hay was writing biographies about Lincoln. Any chance he could talk about Lincoln, you know, he would be interviewed all the time and had just have nothing but, you know, glowing things to say about how awesome Lincoln was. And so John Hay kind of did help form and I guess made solidify public perception because it does seem like right or left, everybody loves Lincoln. And right. so you could argue maybe without people like John Hay advocating him that maybe this, I mean, because the South doesn't really grumble about Lincoln these days, right? They're like, yeah, Lincoln Republican. Like, so there are definitely people who still grumble about Lincoln in the South, but it's, okay. uh, <laughs> I would say that they're, they're, they're more, they're more fringe. Like the, okay. Yeah. 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 Mainstream everywhere. Everybody loves Lincoln. But I was just thinking that may be less of a John Hay thing and more of a, the Southern strategy shift <laughs> from the fifties and sixties. Yeah. In fact, the, the Republican Lincoln is now the party that claims the South. And so that's maybe more of that than has anything to do with John Hay, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it's, there's that whole thing and it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of intellectually dishonest, but they'll, you know, You'll have like Republicans in the South. Well, we're the party of Lincoln. And actually, if you go back and look like who was the members of the KKK, it was the Democrats. And it's like, right. yeah, but also Which is correct. Like technically, but... yes, that's true. <laughs> right. But also you're leaving out like a whole bunch of other stuff that happened since then. <laughs> right, right. So it could, it could be like you could say you could say this is this. 
I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but you could say a woman won the men's dec- decathlon at the 1976 Olympics, which is factually correct, but also there's some context there. You're leaving out that that woman was a man in 1976. Yeah, or maybe the better way to say it would, well, I don't know. I'd- okay, I thought it was a good analogy. <laughs> I feel like we're just uh, we're just like dancing on a bear trap right now, so maybe we should. Uh... Fair enough, fair enough. So that was so that was John Hay. And then last thing I wanted to mention here, actually, I do have a question for you here too. But uh, um, so the Panama Canal was built under or started, I guess I should say, it with uh, it was a, like you mentioned a big project for Roosevelt, and we just honestly just we forget how important and how big a deal the Panama Canal was and is and that like back before there was a Panama Canal if you were in San Francisco and wanted to get to New York City the fastest way to do that was to take a boat down to Panama go across the narrow part because Panama is not a very wide country it's that skinny part down at the bottom uh, between North North and South uh, America get on another boat and take that boat to New York City that was yep. the fastest way to get there. So, oh my gosh, if we could just not have to switch boats, that's even faster. Right. Now, Transcontinental Railroad helped speed some things up, but just economically and everything, it was still, it would be a huge thing if you could neither not have to go around the southern tip of South America or not have to go across land and switch boats across Panama. Huge, huge game changer for like the whole world economy. So the French actually tried it first in the 1880s. They hired the, uh, they had the same guy who had designed and successfully built the Suez Canal. They're like, hey, you're the canal guy. Let's send you down to do the same thing in Panama. And they almost said because of that, he was basically too arrogant. Like, I can just do it the exact same way. It's like, this is a different place with different considerations. And so basically, <laughs> it was just an absolute debacle. They threw millions of dollars, lost 20,000 men just to fail. Their engineering was just bad. They just Jeez. had a. They did not have a good plan that would work at all. So that failed, dies off. We still know we want to do it, and then the Panamanians want it because of the economic benefits to Panama. But there, uh, there was also talk of well, maybe we could go across Nicaragua instead if that would be maybe political more feasible or whatever else. And the problem the 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 Panamanians had was they were actually controlled by Colombia. Yeah, at the time, and so. Panama stages a coup to become independent, basically so they could make the Panama Canal deal. Which, so once they gain their independence, the first thing they do is team up with the United States and Teddy Roosevelt to, and all the treaties we're talking about with John Hay, to get this canal built. And so it was started uh, under Roosevelt, took, uh, actually, was it started even 1904? Was it even that same year? Like, as soon as he... The construction began, you said the construction began in 1904, Okay, that's what I was asking. It wasn't okay, finished yeah, yeah. until 1914. Yes, yes, yes. So it took nine, ten years to, to get everything uh, finished up there. And it was still a, a horrific ordeal with disease and accidents killing 5,000 workers. But yeah, it's still the main source of revenue for Panama to this day. And I forget the year where, obviously, we kind of, then we essentially leased the land for like 100 years or whatever. And then, was it, was, so was it like 2013, 2014, when it went back to Panama after 100 years? Because I was thinking it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it it was recently because yeah, for a long uh, for a long time it was. So it was uh, maybe a one hundred year lease kind of thing. Nineteen ninety nine. Oh, okay, that's a weird number then. Okay, and then so the one thing I wanted to ask you about that kind of ties into Teddy Roosevelt and this film to kind of end with here 
the idea of, quote, gunboat diplomacy. Did you look into that at all as far as like basically like a Roosevelt uh, foreign policy kind of thing? It does tie into his uh, big stick philosophy. It's a yeah, it's a term that I've heard before. And I think it's come up in the timeline a few times. But it's basically like if we see it in the movie, it's basically like, hey, there's this like foreign issue where the U.S. has this interest and it would really like it if it if the the U.S. would really like it if, if it went a certain way. So we're just going to park a bunch of giant warships outside of one of your ports and then, you know, then you make whatever decision you're going to make. <laughs> and that's and that's kind of like how the United States was able to like get they got well, th- way back they got Japan to end its isolationism by doing just that. But yeah, we you know, it, it with the Panama Canal. So when Panama declares independence from Colombia, what does the United States do? A ton of warships and marines parked Outside of Panama, like, hey, Colombia, maybe don't mess with Panama anymore. We're not, we're not threatening you. Right. We're just saying it'd be great if you didn't mess with Panama. Right. We're, we're not. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're not necessarily threatening you, but like, also look at all these warships that we have. And same thing with the with the Petacaris incident. So yeah, it's it's kind of a a big thing that uh, Roosevelt liked to do with the Navy that I talked about, or the Great White Fleet. It was like the symbol of of American power in the world. Okay, that all makes sense. And then any final notes you had on the film, and then we'll kick it to oh, next step. Oh, one thing that I wanted to ask about. I didn't see anything, and I did kind of look into I didn't like super deep dive into it, but what was the deal with Teddy Roosevelt having that Japanese soldier that was like at all of his events, he was shooting archery with him, and it was a, it was a Japanese guy. Not, he was not in an American uniform. Like, it was a Japanese guy. Like in a military uniform. Oh, but they never really hung. A, they never really hung a lantern on it, though. Like I don't even really remember that. No, they. It, it was like a background thing. They ne- he never brought it up. I, I think he has like one line, and it's when when Roosevelt shoots the bullseye, and he says like, oh, you know, nice shot, and like that's it. But like he's in a few other scenes, but he's like very clearly some Japanese official. Huh. The only thing I would say is that that's probably not entirely unrealistic because this would have been about the time of the Russo-Japanese War. And Japan would have been a major, becoming a major player, and might have had ambassadors and people over with the United States, right? And, and it's around the time it, w- it would have been around or during the time that Roosevelt was mediating that treaty, the one that got him the peace prize. So maybe, maybe there were, you know, he had like a representative from Japan and a representative from Russia in D.C. who he was, you know, talking with on a regular basis. But I just thought that it was interesting that this guy's at like multiple different things in the movie. And they never, they never really explain why he's, why he's there. Huh? Yeah. We, th- we would have been mid. So the Russo Japanese war was from February, 1904 to September, 1905. So it would have yeah. been in the middle of that war when this film takes place. So, right. You're right. It's just interesting. They didn't explain it, but still thought to include it. That is, that is bizarre. Yeah. The other thing is they talk about, there's like a, a parallelism that they use where, uh, Rasuli asks the Petacaris woman what kind of rifle Roosevelt uses, and she says a Winchester. And he wasn't familiar. Yeah. And then Rose, right? And he says, "Oh, a Winchester. I, I, you know, what what kind of rifle is a Winchester? I've, I've never heard of this." And then Roosevelt asks one of his aides, "What kind of rifle does he use?" And so it was like a, an interesting thing. But I guess it's possible that Rasuli wouldn't have known what a Winchester was, but I don't think it's likely because Winchester had been making rifles for almost forty years at that point. Right, that seemed odd. Unless he had a different name for it or something, but that is I thought that seemed odd too. Yeah, I I don't know. And it's like it's even funnier, well not I don't know, funny, but like when the 
Marines show up at the end and they have those pump action shotguns, those like old like World War One style trench guns. Okay. Those are those are Winchester shotguns. So like they. Oh, that's funny. It just I I don't know. It, it, I I thought that it was kind of weird that they would make Rasuli. I I can kind of see why they're doing, and it, maybe it was just to set up that one line where he says, "Oh, I've never heard of this." And she says, "Well, you will." Oh yeah. Maybe that's the reason why they made him say, "Oh, I don't. I've never heard of a Winchester before." But it's like Winchester's been around for decades at that point. Right, and he's a career criminal. You would think have a pretty good idea on weapons. Yeah, and it's and it's not like there was eighteen hundred people making weapons back then. <laughs> yeah, and, I would imagine. And like he, well, I, did he speak English in real life? Do you know? I know he was well educated, and the fact that it was an international city, I would not be surprised if he did. But I didn't see one yeah. way or the other. And then the fact that he did have a good relationship with Perry Cardis, although that could have been Perry Cardis speaking Moroccan. I actually don't know what the language would have been there. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, so if if he's a guy who is well educated, spoke English, and makes a living like kidnapping people and fighting people with guns, I I would assume that he would have known what a what a Winchester was. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, so, so, solid film. It's a pretty simple story. Um, I I don't think they developed enough with the the whole Stockholm syndrome thing that kind of gets developed between Candace Bergen and Sean Connery's character. I feel like that was. It was almost like too much and not enough at the same time. Like you either need to do more with it or do nothing with it. Like yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's 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 solid. I'm glad you you enjoyed it. I I did not enjoy it. I just thought it was okay and uh, definitely like the Roosevelt parts uh, more. Yeah, not a bad film. Probably worth checking out. And next time we'll be back to the United States, which is appropriate for an American history <laughs> timeline here. Talking about New York City, kind of from 1902 to 1912, and the music that was big at that time was called Ragtime. So that is the film. One of James Cagney's last films, uh, Ragtime, will be what we discuss next time. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash historyandfilm. There is some extra content over there, some for free, some behind the paywall, but kind of helps us start paying the bills around here. So check that out and we'll see you later.